Welcome to the BristolCon Fringe, a series of readings from the science fiction and fantasy community. This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience in the centre of Bristol. Ah, good evening everybody. Thank you for all wending your way here through the desperate heat of uh, midsummer Bristol. Delighted to see that none of you have expired on the way. <laughs> anyway, welcome to another Bristol Confringe. Uh, we have two more fabulous readers for you today. And to kick things off, we have somebody who is... Uh, I, you, you've probably seen this stuff on social media about writing and co, and that you probably thought that it's in, this enormous worldwide organisation <laughs> that runs all of writing. Um, and, and of course it is and uh, here as uh, one of the uh, the eminence greases behind this enormous worldwide conspiracy or whatever it is can we have a warm welcome please for Keiko I can neither confirm nor deny there is any kind of conspiracy to take over the world <laughs> that is all I can say on the matter otherwise Sammy will try and kill me Hello, right. <laughs> writing Co is actually a blog and writing and a review and me, essentially. Um, it is mostly a blog. Um, yes, you probably have seen me pop up on Twitter. I am going to read two pieces for you today, two very short pieces, you will be relieved to know. One is from a series that is published with Grimbold Books and it's a novella series. It is spark punk writing. It's steampunk, except they skipped right over all the coal and went straight to electricity. It's a world with magic. Um, it's a world of wind and gliders. And it's delightful, I've been assured. That's the first piece. The second piece is from a series called No Man's Land. It's urban fantasy, except it doesn't have anything sparkly in it. No vampires, no werewolves. Where... Um, Green Sky is delightful, No Man's Land isn't. So, uh, yes. <laughs> that one isn't published yet. Um, I am still currently looking for an agent for it. Hint, hint. So, the first piece of writing is from book five of the Green Sky series. It's called Empty Skies and Sunlight. They came into Teo just as the sun was starting to go down. Jess had been seasick for most of the journey, spending her days in the cabin, but managed to pull herself up onto the deck for the final stretch. From where they stood on the boat deck, the islands spread themselves out, taking up the entire view. Lake Hoss sailed majestically just above the surface of the water, its green and flourishing upper half contrasting sharply with the shining gold of the scriff that covered the bottom, currently sending golden arrows in all directions from the fading sunlight. Teo's islands sat on a vent of buoyant gas, and some trick of the chemicals melted the rock, trapping bubbles of the gas before hardening in the heat from the vent. Over time, more and more of the scrift bubbles raised the seabed up, creating the floating islands. Lakos had gained enough that when it finally broke loose, it rose out of the water, and several others had managed the same feat. Selwa was off to the left, floating serenely with half of its base still in the waters. The tiny sem was just visible behind Lakos, shyly peeping out and Calx was the final air island. It had managed to spiral higher into the sky and was currently riding serenely up in the green, its golden base on fire with the fading light. Anoe dragged her gaze down to sea level, 
where Mason and Major rode in the blue of the waves, with enough scriff bubbles to float, but not enough to rise into the sky. They were only lightly populated, receiving little of the sunlight due to the bulk of the islands floating above them, and only really used for fishing. Pez, the last of the islands, was out of view over the horizon in front of them. And finally, there was Torth, their destination on the very furthest coast. It was a ragged city, built almost entirely of driftwood that tumbled over the jagged edges of the rock, so that every building seemed to be a different height and leaned drunkenly against its neighbour. The chaotic jumble covered the entire peninsula, with wharves and docking pontoons spilling out from every side. From down by the wharves, a series of cages lifted themselves on a thick cable up towards Lacos, carrying boxes and people to and from the Sky Islands. Why don't they float away? Jess asked, clutching the rail with white-knuckled hands. They're heavy, Anoway said. It takes them a long time to move, and they are anchored together. They don't look like they should float, Jess said with faint wonder. It's strange. Torth's harbour was ramshackle, built of driftwood and stone in the natural curve of the rock. It was both a stopping-off point for trade ships and a fishing harbour, and as such collected a motley group of vessels. Anoa sniffed as she stepped off the ship and decided that she would be grateful to leave the harbour as soon as possible. People never seemed to remember that what they threw into the harbour would return with the waves, particularly stupid when one considered that the houses were made of driftwood. At least Alaric kept their harbour in good order. So where are we going? Jess asked from behind her, sounding grateful to be back on some sort of dry land. Hey, I can feel the island moving. That's just you getting used to land again, Anna explained, trying not to smile. The islands are too heavy to move in this sort of weather. Anyway, Torth is mainland. Do they move in storms? I don't think so. You could ask Jemmy when we get to the centre. Sunset was beginning to fire across the sky as they headed through the ramshackle streets. Anoe kept an eye out, trying to get used to the culture again. There were a lot of bars and taverns, most selling the sweet-spiced vegetable and seaweed wraps that were a staple of the diet here, which Jess wasn't too sure about when handed one as dinner. Other stalls sold bottles of something unidentifiable. There were pots of flowers and climbers scattered along the streets, and she noticed various roof gardens spilling salt-blown leaves down the walls. Snatches of music and singing came through beautifully painted curtains, and Anaway spotted several young men with intricately painted muscles lounging in the shadows until a buyer came along. The people on the streets were a mixture of foreign sailors and islanders, and weapons were on display. Anaway felt very conspicuous with her short hair and knives on display over her plain leather jerkin, but at least her weapons weren't viewed as a threat here. They established her status and her role. Like everything else in the city, the deer centre was mostly driftwood and small palm planks, but Anaway noted that the main structure was stone. The deer centres functioned as banks, lockups, secure storage and refuges, so they needed all the building strength they could get. Checking that Jess was still on her heels and hadn't lingered to look at her stall again, Anaway headed in the front door. The small counter was empty, and so Annie rapped on the wood. After a few minutes, she rapped again. Oh, for... a muffled voice said, and then louder, Just coming! So that's Green Sky. Thank you. Yeah, the second one, No Man's Land, is... Sarcastic, snarky. Um, my beta reader didn't talk to me for two days after she read the ending, which was good. Um, but yes, yeah, she. I 
think she's forgiven me, almost. Um, the story's quite horrible. This bit isn't, um, although it is snarky. And I am rather fond of the narrator. <laughs> so, I get off the train in a rather dark Salisbury. It's a beautiful city from what I know. Stunning medieval cathedral, ancient buildings, a hill fort someplace in the vicinity. When I get out of the station, the first thing that greets me is a street with a rundown takeaway and a sex shop. Classy. I glance at the map on my phone and take a side road, which gives me a view of the soaring spire lit in bright white. Not a patch on London skyscraper, sure, but still impressive for a bunch of stonemasons without a hydraulic crane between them. The dark space to the side is apparently a park, and there are street lights, so there's some degree of modern civilization. Sure, I'm judgmental. By me. Anyway, thanks to this urgent delivery, I'm on my way to see the Merlin, the leader of our small, select, magical community. And when I say select, I don't mean it in a good way. The man currently in the job is not the one anyone would have chosen, but beggars can't be choosers. When our apocalypse hit and the supernatural community collapsed, Luke dropped off the face of the earth for a bit. Not that we were particularly keeping track, as we had other things to worry about. Wizards going insane, people randomly dying, that sort of stuff. But he resurfaced a few years after the worst of it was over. A representative of one of the minor powers, and as sane as those of us who were left. By that point, our Merlin was dead. She'd known what was happening, and asked me to take her out before her mind warped. She called it a mercy killing. I called it murder. Either way, I did it. So we were pretty much in a bind. The magical community had been ripped to shreds, and we were just finding our feet. And when Luke reappeared, he got handed the title of Merlin because he was the best available and one of the only ones who wanted it. The rest of us think that defending a rip between worlds, miles from anywhere, and without decent company isn't much fun. But Luke seems to enjoy it, from what anyone can tell. Well, it's a nice enough city. I trundle down a street with some leaning timber-framed buildings, turn right towards an old stone gateway that's pretty picturesque, and it's shut. Seriously? They shut the gates? Jeez, this really is the sticks. It's positively medieval, and I don't mean that in a complimentary way. I stroll up to the gate and push my gloved hand towards it. I can feel the wards. Not particularly strong, just present. The wood itself is pretty solid, so they aren't messing around actually shutting these things. And there's a sign, too. It gets locked at 10pm and opened at 6am. I really am out in the country now, aren't I? Kansas and 24-hour opening times are a long way behind. A curse on urgent messages for throwing unexpected hazards in my way. So I knock. And wait. Knock again. Wait. Again. Nada. All right, let's try something else. I check my phone and scroll back out. There's a river to the right, although I'm not sure I like getting wet feet, but I can't really see any other way in beyond breaking the gates, and I try to be polite. So I walk back the way I came, over a small stone bridge before turning left past a row of houses and down into the darkness that's apparently the park. There are cameras here, but they don't bother me. We have a live and let live policy, or at least I turn myself invisible so they can't see me and they don't get blown up. It's fair. The river's deeper than I expected. It's not too cold though and I hoik myself out onto the far bank without too much trouble, trying to sense any wards around. There's lawns and shadows and I slink through them as easily as I would London's concrete alleys. I choose a house with a path leading past it and tread softly over the gravel as I walk up the drive. 
cameras won't even know I've been past. I come out onto a small square lawn, seeing the spire lit up above a row of houses. I stroll across the tarmac and along, admiring the cathedral, and then stop at the red brick house shoved between two others. I admit that I do take a deep breath, and then I knock and wait again. It's 86 seconds later, I counted, that the door opens and I'm staring up at the six foot three Merlin. He looks down his nose at me. Hi. I simply stare back up at him. Hi yourself. I see his eyes scan over me. How did you get across the river? He asks. He sounds annoyed. I walked. Did you have some extra special spell on it, Ben? Well, yes, actually. I wondered why my ward's bollocked up. He folds his arms. He's wearing ripped jeans, more through wear than any fashion choice, I guess, and a blue t-shirt that's showing off his scars. He was in a bike accident years ago. One side of his face and arm is covered in white lines and scar tissue. What do you want? I pull the package out of my pocket. This is for you, special delivery. He thrusts out a hand and I obligingly lay the thin box in it. Delivery complete. I did consider sneaking a look, but I don't know what spells Elise had put on it to stop me. Why didn't Alvin bring it? Luke asks as I'm about to turn away. He's overseas. I got suckered into this instead. He snorts, ripping the box open. Elise had to pick my favourite person, didn't she? It was Marek, I tell him dryly, peering at the box to try to see what's in it. I fold a sheet of paper and something wrapped in tissue paper. I thought you would have got over that by now. He's scanning the message and is silent for a second as he reads it. Huh, London Conclave, nice. And then he looks up. Anyway, being nearly eaten by a fucking dragon takes a while to get over. He scans me again and then sighs. You'd better come in. The neighbours already think I'm a mess. I don't need you on the doorstep to confirm it. And you'd rather have the yelling match inside? I comment, stepping over his threshold. That too. So, fancy apologising? Bristol Con Fringe is a monthly podcast produced by the Bristol Con Foundation. The music at the beginning of this podcast is The Future by Chevy174. We'd like to thank the famous Royal Navy volunteer for providing us with a venue, and we'd like to thank you for listening. If you would like to keep up to date with our events, please like our Bristol Con Fringe page on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BrizConFringe.